passage of Scripture, I thought about breaking down Peter's sermon into two parts, uh, you know, two Sundays, and then I went, no, I'll just make them read like 20 verses. What's the problem with that? Shouldn't have one. This is not the culmination of Pentecost. The culmination of Pentecost, we're actually going to read about next week. The real outcome of Pentecost, we're going to talk about next Sunday. But this is the moment, right? If you remember, last week we talked about the fact that um, they're, they're speaking in tongues, right? You've got the, the, the uh, cloven tongues of fire above their head and all that kind of stuff. And some people are amazed because that what's happening, right, is that they're hearing there's a bunch of different languages that people would have spoken in Jerusalem at that particular time because of the festival that's going on. And everybody's hearing them in their own language, even though uh, the, the apostles are only speaking one language, right? And there are some people who are amazed and they're perplexed, and there are some who are mocking, right? These people are drunk, that's all. They're just drunk. And in that moment... We have the man who, boy, this guy's got a lot of ups and downs in his life. This is the man who was told, on this rock I will build my church, who was told, get thee behind me, Satan, who denies Jesus three times, who Jesus personally goes and gets back to his, uh, brings him back into the fold, who in just a, uh, a chapter earlier, we read that Peter didn't do what Christ said and didn't wait on the Holy Spirit. He took matters into his own hands to make another apostle instead of waiting. This man is going to stand up and become the rock upon which God will build the church. This is not the first sermon ever preached. Maybe the greatest? Maybe? Let's read it. We're in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. It reads like this, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of, the, of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, but you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make, full, make me full of gladness with your presence. 
Brethren, I am confidently, I conf, I'm, I'm going to restart that. Verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that, this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who was ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This sermon is kind of split into two parts, right? If it was being preached today, it wouldn't be a three-point sermon. It would be a two-point sermon, right? I find it funny. So a peek behind the curtain, right? I preach to you guys in what is called expository preaching. You take a section of text, usually five to eight or nine verses, somewhere around there. Today it's like 22, but whatever, right? A section of verses, you read those verses, and then you explain what those verses mean in the context. What is God saying? There's another style of preaching. It's called topical. What that is, is I want to preach on love. I will pull 10 scriptures from all over the Bible that talk about love. Usually only one or two verses long, right? That's called topical preaching. What I normally do is topical expository because each sermon I preach has a topic. There's a topic inherent in the scripture, right? A peek behind the curtain my dad has been on me to preach more topical style sermons uh, that deal with certain issues. I find it very curious that the first sermon ever preached by an apostle was not topical, it was expository. Because Peter takes two sections of scripture and explains what they mean. No, there's nothing wrong with topical or expository, it's just the style, right? I just find that funny. But Peter takes two sections of scripture, two, uh, one from David and one from the prophets, and explains what they mean. So let's talk about it. Part one, number one on your note sheets, part one, part one. He starts off by defending the apostles in his sermon, right? That would be his intro, right? I try to get up here. Generally, my intros, um, I try to make them funny. Sometimes they are. Sometimes I get a lot of this. It happens. It's all good. Um. His intro is, we're not drunk, it's seven in the morning, right? It's only the third hour of the day. Seven in the morning is not exactly accurate, okay? I'm not saying that it was, he was saying it was seven. I am saying he's going, it literally hasn't been long enough for us to be drunk, unless we have been drinking all night long. We're not drunk. Instead, let me show to you what has happened. Because put yourselves, right, put yourselves in the shoes of some of the people watching. They don't know that there were cloven tongues of fire and a mighty rushing wind that went through, right? They know that there is, and we read this a little bit earlier in Acts, there's about 150 people in an upper room for like 40 days. And they come down, 
and are speaking a bunch of different languages. There was no Rosetta Stone back then. They did not learn these languages. There's really only two explanations. It's a miracle of God, or these people are actually drunk. I can understand why a bunch of people went, these guys, they've been up there, they've been drinking their heads off for the past 40 days. Who cares? They're drunk. I understand why some people would think that. Peter, however, goes, no, 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 no. We are not drunk. But this is what the prophet said would happen. This is what God, through the prophet Joel, says would happen. You'll notice one of the main themes of Acts, and we've, sat, we've talked about this in multiple of the sermons so far. One of the main themes of Acts is God does what he says he will do. God, says, God does what he says he will do. It never comes out right and says it, necessarily. But whether it's right here with the upper room, whether it's with Saul who becomes Paul in his whole life, whether it's with Peter or whatever, God does what he says he will do. Sometimes it's through the Old Testament, right? He takes prophecies that were made in the Old Testament and they come to pass. Sometimes it's, hey, go and do this, right? We're going to read eventually in Acts here about where Paul is shipwrecked. And God says, I'm not killing you yet. It's not your time. So stay on the boat, keep everybody with you, and everybody's going to be fine. And when you read to the end of the story, you know what happens? Paul and the rest of them make it to Rome just fine. We're going to have a whole bunch of stories like that. God does what he says. And I want to encourage you with that this morning. When you read this section, that's what Peter is saying. Listen, God already said this was going to happen, and it did. It happened. The other thing is that God will give you reasons to believe. Now, oftentimes they will not be in the way that we want them to be, right? Boy, there would be a lot more Christians in this world if God would just show up and tell you about him, right? wrong he did that they killed him just saying we like to think that if God came down there would be so much more no we humans love to be able to push God aside we've been doing it for 6,000 some odd years we will do it until the end times and then even in the end times they do it again it's not until Christ destroys heaven and earth makes them completely new, and Satan is cast finally into the lake of fire, that humans that are left, that have accepted him, stop pushing him aside. But he will give you reasons to believe. Elsewhere in scripture, right, we read that the very rocks cry out about the, ex the existence of God. If you've ever read, it's a great book, if you've ever read um, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, he did some radio things, and he uh, wrote them down. And in it, he has three sections. The first one is proving the fact that God exists. He's not trying to get you to be a Christian. He's not trying to get you to say, oh, Jesus is God. No, he's just proving the fact that God exists. His basic proof is, look at the world around you. Order does not come from chaos without somebody putting order to it. 
there has to be some sort of higher power. There must be. Because the world has order. And it does. Let me ask you this, right? If I took apart my phone, to every tiny little piece, put it in a bag, and just shook it for a million years, what are the odds that I would have a perfect working phone when I opened up that bag a million years later? Almost non-existent. I'll give you maybe, maybe I'll give you the tiniest percent, maybe. It's not going to happen. An intelligent creator made this phone. An even more intelligent creator made this world. We want reasons to believe in God. He's given them all. He's given us every reason to believe in God. Lastly, for part one, Peter transitions into verse 21 for us. I love this. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The whole point, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more when we get into part two, the whole point of Jesus' coming, the whole point of the prophecies and the prophets in the, in the Old Testament, the whole point of Peter's sermon, the whole point of what Paul will do, the whole point of why we are here is to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the good news. To proclaim that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not sitting here going, I don't think most people. In fact, I know most people will not call on the name of the Lord. Does not change what our calling is to be. Does not change why God did what he did throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New. The Old Testament points forward to the cross. The New Testament points backwards to it. It points to the cross. The single most important three-day stretch in all of time was the cross. His death and then his resurrection. So Peter makes this whole point in part one. And then he transitions into, okay, if we're going to talk about the fact that there's a savior, let's talk about who that guy is. Number two on your note sheets there, part two. Part two. Now he wants to prove who Jesus is, right? And he goes, listen, the guy you crucified, that guy, the guy you crucified, he worked in signs and in wonders. He did miraculous things, things that had never been done before. He did them. He was God, and you killed him. But here's the amazing thing, right? We read that David talks about his body will not decay. His soul, right? You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And then later on, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So he says, listen, David says his soul will not be abandoned to Hades and his body will not undergo decay. I think we can rest assured, I'm pretty positive, David did not go to Hades. I'm fairly positive David went to heaven. He made a lot of mistakes in his life, but I don't think God can call you a man after his own heart, and then you go to hell. I think David's in heaven. Does anybody here disagree with that statement? 
No. Good. All right. So that means that his soul was not abandoned to Hades. Okay. So we could be talking about David here still. Until he says, and the body, his body, will not undergo decay. And Peter goes, his grave's right over there. Open it. His body has undergone decay. So this could not be talking about David. Instead, it's talking about the Christ. A resurrected man whose body did not undergo decay. I'm not talking about his wounds and stuff like that. I'm a firm believer that he still has wounds. They're not, I'm a firm believer that Jesus does not have scars. I think he's got wounds. Everywhere else in scripture, post his resurrection, he never says, touch the scar on my wrists or my side. It's touch the wounds. It's not by his scars that we are healed. It's by his wounds. I think Jesus still has open wounds to this day, and I think he will for eternity. It's not disgusting, right? We sit there and go, oh, they've got to be oozing and bloody and pussy and all that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. I think they're beautiful, and I think the first time I see them, I will at once be heartbroken, but also exalted. Not exalted in that I'm lifted up, but, you know, overjoyed, because by his wounds I'm healed. And it was by his wounds that I came to be a Christian, that the way was made. But I know his body didn't undergo decay. So now he's saying, listen, Jesus was resurrected. A bunch of you saw him. You know this. And then he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. If I'm David, right, and I write, the Lord said to my Lord, I'm not talking about myself at that point. God said to Jesus, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now. His enemies are his footstool. As he was exalted and ascended into heaven. The point of this is that your primary proof for who Jesus was and is, is this book right here. People will try to tell you in your defense that you shouldn't use this book. They don't believe this book, okay? I'm still going to use it. Nobody has any right to tell you. Throw out scripture. Prove to me Jesus is God without scripture. How? I can't, but I'm going to use scripture to do it. We know because of Roman historians, we know that the man Jesus existed. We don't have to prove that the man Jesus of Nazareth existed. But when you're going to prove who Christ is, that he was not just a man, he was not just a prophet, he was God incarnate, the salvation of souls, you have to use this book. Don't lean on your own understanding. Go to what this book says. You are right. A lot of people will not believe you. They don't believe this book. They'll give you all kinds of reasons. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know where it came from, yada, yada, yada. Yet they will read things like uh, Homer's The Iliad and The Odyssey and other contemporary historical narratives from this time as well. And they are far less historically accurate to what was originally written than what this book is. You can't force somebody to believe this. 
that doesn't mean you shouldn't use it nonetheless. So let's apply it to our lives. Let's, let's look at how can we apply Peter's sermon. Well, the first thing is, listen, and I didn't write this down there. The first thing is, Peter gave you all the proof you need that there is a God and that Jesus is God and died for your sins. Everything else about applying it to your life, everything else we're going to read in Scripture doesn't matter if you don't believe those two simple facts. So first to apply it, you've got to actually apply it to your life and accept Christ. If you've done that, then there's a couple of things you can do. First off, it's not about your honor. Notice Peter defends the apostles for one verse and then talks about God for the rest of it. If people wanted to believe they were drunk, fine. He goes, listen, we're not. Let me introduce you to Jesus. I'm guessing there were still a lot of people afterward that went, this guy's drunk. Okay. We're going to read next week, 3,000 people get saved from this sermon. I mentioned it last week. I'll mention it again this week, and I'll probably mention it next week. If 3,000 got saved, I would wager that at least double that did not. It's not about your honor. It's not about you looking good. It's not about what people think about you. Now, yes, you should not just live your life willy-nilly. We're not talking about that. But I am saying people will mock you. They will not like you. Too bad. I don't know what to tell you. It's not about you. Secondly, and I mentioned this a little bit ago, our primary purpose to the unbelieving world is not to vote in the polls for what we believe or to vote in the elections for what we believe. I believe you should vote. We live in a country that allows it. You should go vote. That is not our primary purpose on this earth. Our primary purpose is not to make everybody live a certain way. It's just not. Our primary purpose is to present the gospel to them and let God handle the rest. I am a firm believer, I've talked about it before, I am a firm believer that there is a lot of black and white in this Bible, a lot of right and wrong, and we should not try to make gray area with those things. What God says is right is right, what God says is wrong is wrong. End of sentence. It is not my job to make sure that an unbeliever is living righteously. They couldn't do it if they tried. I can't do it without God. I need him every hour just to be have a semblance of righteousness in my life. They're never going to be able to do it. If I may, stop worrying about what they're wearing. Stop worrying about what they're saying. Stop worrying about how they're voting. Stop worrying about all this other stuff and worry about, have I told them who Jesus is yet? Have I showed them the good news? I'm not talking about believers here. I'm talking about unbelievers. Because, yeah, as believers, we are held to a, to a certain standard. And, yes, we should watch what we say and how we dress and how we vote and all that other kind of stuff. But to an unbelieving world, our job is not to try to make them righteous. Our job is to present the gospel to them and let Jesus handle the rest because we would just mess it up. Lastly, that I wrote down. You might take some other stuff from this. That's cool. Lastly, from what I wrote down. Scripture is your best tool. 
we were, my dad and I were yesterday, we're starting up a youth group in September, right? We've got a, we've got a group of like 10 tweener type of kids, and we're starting one up. We haven't announced it yet, like full made an announcement, because we don't have the exact date nailed down, but it's going to be mid to late September sometime, and hopefully next week I'll be able to tell you, hey, this is the date. But either way, so we were up in the ministry, or not in the ministry room, in the modular, cutting a hole in a wall so that we can have a, a little snack area and stuff like that for it, right? And we had a, a table saw, or a circular saw, not a table saw. We did not bring a table saw up there. A circular saw. What was the other saw? A what? A chop saw. Uh, we had a couple of hammers. We had some screws. We had some finishing nails. You know, a screwdriver. We had all the stuff we needed. We did not try to, you know, hammer in the nail with a screwdriver. Has anybody ever done that? You've got a nail, and you're like, well, I don't have a hammer here. I guess I will use anything else to hit this thing with. Does it work as well as a hammer does? No, you might get it done, but boy, it doesn't look as nice. Right? The proper tools for the job, the job might not be perfect, and there was more than once we went, how did we do that? And then you got to figure out how to fix it. Luckily, we've prescribed to the measure twice, cut once, and if you're going to make a mistake, cut it long, because you can shorten it. Once it's too short... You can't really add more on there. Right? It's the idea of when you're, when you're baking something, you can add more flour or sugar or whatever. You can't take it back out. Just saying, right? When you've got the proper tools, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything's going to go perfectly, but it will go way better than if you don't have the right tools. The Bible is the right tool. Use it. But here's the other thing with it. You'd think that hammering in a finishing nail is simple work. It's a hammer and a nail. How hard can it be? Until you've chucked 18 nails away because the darn things just bend like there's no tomorrow. If you tap it just wrong, you might as well just restart. You have to know how to use it as well. And when you're hammering in a finishing nail, it's not a great idea to use a rubber mallet and just... <laughs> swing wildly at it. It won't look good. You got to know how to use the correct tool. If you're using a circular saw, it's not a great idea to hold the wood like this when the saw is going to go right here. You're cut your finger off. You use the tool correctly. You use the I should say you use the correct tool for the job, you didn't use it correctly. It's not just enough to use this tool. You have to know how to use it. That means studying scripture. That means memorizing scripture. That means spending time with God because we do a, 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 and, a and you guys are all welcome to come to this. I'm not 100% sure why I haven't announced it before. On Thursday mornings at 1030, we do a Bible study here. Anybody's welcome to come to it. We have a great time. We're walking through Matthew right now. Um, there's like five or six of us. Anybody's welcome to come to it. We have a great time. And um, where was I going with that? Oh, we were talking about the fact this past, this past Thursday, right, that it's the Holy Spirit who shows you things in Scripture. The first thing the Holy Spirit shows you is the gospel. If he has not revealed the truth of the gospel to you, he will not reveal the rest of the truths in this book. 
But once he has done that, it is the Holy Spirit. It's why a lot of you have been Christians longer than I have. You go, man, I read this scripture verse, this passage, 10 years ago. And when I read it this time, I saw so much more. No, you saw it differently. The Holy Spirit revealed different things to you this time than he did last time. Right? It's important to remember this. The Bible never says more than it says, but it does say more than you see. Don't read your own things into Scripture. Let the Holy Spirit reveal them to you. But the fact of the matter is that if you haven't spent time learning how to use this tool, it's useless in your hands. It's useless in your hands. It's like a car. I can't work on cars. My dad has tried to teach me. I've done my own brakes before. They squealed like there was no tomorrow. I got covered in motor oil one time because I was trying to change my own oil. And dad goes, you got to go quick and get that pan. And I, <laughs> I don't do well with cars. I can put in my own wiper fluid. I can do that. And I could put in my own transmission fluid because I once had a vehicle, you probably all have had one like this, that I mean just ate the stuff. It's great. Right? But when it comes to almost anything, I call up my mechanic and go, hey, I'm bringing my car down. Because I would much rather pay the guy that knows what he's doing and does a really good job. If you're looking for a mechanic, Eric Stone on the three lane, he does a really good job. I go to him. I don't try to do it myself. Because I know I'm just going to mess it up because I don't know the tools and I don't know what I'm doing. Now, maybe if I spent a lot of time, like somebody like Eric Stone or another mechanic has done, I might be able to learn some stuff and be able to better work on my car. I don't care enough. I don't care enough to do it that. So I'm just going to mess it up. Those brakes are worse in my hands. Yeah, they're supposed to stop my car, and maybe they will, maybe, if I replace them. But it's way better because he knows what he's doing. When you know what you are doing with this book, you are actually a help. If you don't, when you don't know, it looks like this, taking verses out of context. Making them say things that it does not actually say. Stuff like that. Or just using a scripture verse and, quite frankly, using the wrong one and causing somebody more anguish than you actually helped the fix. Some verses in scripture you shouldn't pull out and just use. For instance, if somebody is dealing with, you know, I'll go with this one, the loss of a loved one, perhaps you should not pull out the verse in Psalms that talks about dashing children's heads against rocks. That's probably not going to help very much. If you don't believe it's in there, go look it up. It's there. The Bible says some weird stuff in some places. Just going to put that out there. Perhaps you shouldn't pull out the verse very often that says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow your soul is required of you when you're out having lunch with your friend. Probably not the best time for that verse. Right? All scripture is important, and it's there for a reason. But in certain circumstances, certain scriptures aren't the right ones to use. It's not the right one to use when somebody is trying to pick up something heavy and you shouting at them that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. It's not going to help them pick that up. Maybe you should bend down and help pick it up. 
Just saying. Use this book correctly. And to do that, you have to know it. You have to know how to use it. So you've got to study it. You've got to be engaged in it, with it, every day. Peter used scripture, and 3,000 people got saved. He didn't apologize for it. He didn't say, well, I know some of you might not fully agree with this, but I'm going to say it anyway. He just said what needed to be said. And Peter, for all of his faults, I don't think had this one. I think he truly loved. He had a lot of faults as a man, as a human. But he loved the people that God told him to love. And people got saved because of it. And he used this book to do it. It's not about you. Our goal is salvation to an unsaved world. It is not to fix them. That's not up to us. That's up to God. And ultimately, in order to do it, you got to know what this book says, and you got to know how to use it. Right? 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is uh, useful for uh, teaching and rebuking and training and righteousness is useless to you if you haven't studied scripture and know how to teach and prove and train in righteousness. Just saying. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that there are multiple places in Scripture where we read other people's sermons, right? Whether it's Peter or Paul or, or Jesus, right? Whatever. We've read other sermons. I thank you that they show us certain ways how to do it, right? To not take things out of context. To use, to, to, to divide the word of Scripture correctly. But I thank you more importantly that their messages that they spoke, however long ago, still apply to us today. You are God. Jesus is the Christ. He died. He rose again for me. The world screams it. The creation screams it. And my job is to scream it as well. It's our job to scream it as well. I pray, Father, that for all of us in here, that you would use your spirit to open our eyes to this book, to what it says, so that we can divide it correctly and use it correctly. Father, it's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. And amen.